Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1. We're going to be focusing on verses 6 and 7 this morning and considering the work of the angels. Verses 6 and 7, the work of the angels. However, I'm going to read in verse 1 through verse 7 to give us the context. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Give attention to God's holy word. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you. For all of your greatness and glory. And we thank and praise you for your Son, who is the brightness of your glory. We pray now that through the means of preaching you would shine upon us the light of his glory, that as he has risen, the Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in his wings for our souls. We pray that you would do this all for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. When we think of the angels, there's probably many different ideas about what angels are and what angels do. And in our culture, it may be an afterthought for most people. We live in a culture that is very materialistic. We live in a culture that is very bound to physical things. And so most people may go throughout their lives thinking angels are really not that important. Angels may or may not exist, but if they do, it doesn't matter for how we live our lives. However, our culture actually does believe in angels. Our culture actually does have a view of the angelic host, and they have a certain understanding of what the work of angels is. Now, you may be confused by that statement, but let me just say to you that our culture's theology of the angels, as it were, can be seen in Marvel movies. The, 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 the superhero tales are actually the tales of the angels. Think about it with me for a little bit. What is a superhero? It is someone who is mightier than normal people. It is someone who, in certain cases, is almost godlike. Some of the superheroes are named Thor. Some of the superheroes are named Thanos, or the supervillain, I should say. And as you may well know, the names of those characters come from pagan mythology. Now, if you know anything about pagan mythology, and you study some of the ancient fathers of the church who expounded this pagan theology, you'll realize that at rock bottom, what the pagans were doing was worshiping angels. Moses says as much in the book of Deuteronomy. When Israel sacrificed to the gods of the nations, they were sacrificing to fallen angels. They were sacrificing to demons. And so our culture still has an understanding of angels. And what does our culture think angels are made to do? Our culture thinks of angels like Captain America, like Thor, fighting mighty battles and destroying the enemies and swinging their weapons 
to defeat evil. In the Christian church, we often absorb the ideas of the culture. Many of us have seen Marvel movies. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not telling you that if you watch a Marvel movie, you're worshiping demons. That's not my point. My point is that that understanding of angels can influence you so that when angels come up in the scriptures and and the authors of scripture describe the angels to us, we can sometimes import our worldly ideas. And so we we have to ask the question, what is the work of angels? What are angels made to be and to do? And, and how do angels relate to the one true and living God? You know, sometimes as Christians, though we don't worship the pagans, we don't worship the pagan uh, deities, because we are so focused on God, and we should be focused on God, we neglect the angelic host. We neglect what the scriptures say about these spiritual beings, not realizing that God has revealed these things to us for our edification. It's important for us to know about the angels. It's important for us to know who they are, what they do, and why they were created. And what we see in this passage, quite simply, is that the angels were created to worship. The angels were created to worship. This is the proper work of the angels. They they are created, as it will say in our text, as ministers surrounding God's throne and engaged in worship. But we need to look a little bit more closely at what this passage is teaching us because in the context of the book of Hebrews and in the context of chapter 1 that I read at the beginning of our sermon, the author of Hebrews is bringing this point out to prove something to us. He's he's trying to make a point that we will recognize not merely what angels are made to do, not merely that angels are made to worship, but that we would recognize the one that the angels worship is the one who died for you. The one that the angels bow down to and praise from all eternity is the one who died on the cross. And specifically, what the author of Hebrews is proving here is that the resurrected Christ is the proper object of worship, and the angels were made to worship him. The resurrected Christ is the proper object of worship, and the angels were made to worship him. We're going to notice three things in this passage. First is the resurrection, verse 6a. Verse 6a, the resurrection. And then in verse 6b, the object of worship. So we have resurrection, worship, and then in verse 7, the worshipers. Verse 6a is the resurrection. Verse 6b is the command to worship. And verse 7 is the worshipers. And so we begin by paying attention to verse 6a. Uh, You'll notice the language here that the author uses, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, this phrase has occasioned some confusion, especially with the word again. What is the author of Hebrews talking about? Is he saying that when the father brings the firstborn into the world a second time, when he brings him again into the world? Or is he merely listing out Scripture uh, verses? Is he merely listing out his proofs? As if he were to be saying, uh, the Lord said, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, and again, and then he keeps quoting. So the question is, what's going on here? What is the author of Hebrews talking about? What I believe he's talking about is that he's merely listing out scripture proofs. So the way that we should understand verse 6a is very similar to the middle of verse 5. Quote, scripture, you are my son, and again I will be to him a father. And again, 
when he brings the firstborn into the world, he's merely listing out his scriptures. So the word again does not refer to the second coming. The word again is not a reference to Christ being brought into the world a second time. That's not what's being referenced. The word again means that the author is merely listing out his scripture proofs. So then what is being talked about here? It says that he brings the firstborn into the world. Well, what what does this type of language denote? In the scriptures, the idea of the firstborn has to do with the one who has the right of inheritance. The right of the firstborn was the one who would inherit the covenant promises. He would inherit the family wealth, at least the lion's share of the family wealth. And so when the firstborn is referenced, the emphasis is not on the order of creation or the order of birth so much. The emphasis is on he who has a right to the inheritance. Now, this is a reference that's used of the Lord Jesus Christ in several places. As we were going through the book of Genesis, you'll notice that the right of the firstborn can be forfeited. Throughout the book of Genesis, the right of the firstborn is passed on to someone else. Adam was the firstborn son of God, but he failed and forfeited the right of the firstborn. Abraham was not the firstborn son of Nahor. Isaac was not the firstborn son of Abraham. Jacob was not the firstborn son of Isaac. Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. And so all throughout the book of Genesis... The right of the firstborn is passed on to the second son, to the younger son. This is all prefiguring for us the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is speaking about this same idea. And he says in Colossians chapter 1, Verse 15, notice it's very similar to what Hebrews chapter 1 is talking about. He's the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Skipping down then also to verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What both of these references to the firstborn of Jesus means is that in reference to creation, Jesus Christ owns it. In reference to redemption, Jesus Christ owns it. Jesus Christ is the owner according to the right of the firstborn. He possesses heaven and earth. Now, in verse 18 of Colossians 1, Paul says that he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the firstborn over the church. When we are speaking about the resurrection of the dead and Christ being the firstborn from the dead, we are speaking about the completion of his person and work. Uh, Not so much the completion of his person, but the completion of his work as the person of our Redeemer. You remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent into the world to do one very important thing, save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, the angel says, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all throughout the Lord Jesus' life, through his teaching, his miracles, his compassion, his mercy, his death on the cross, and his burial in the tomb... That salvation was not accomplished until he's resurrected from the dead. Until he is brought back from the grave, it is, as it were, a waiting period for redemption to be fully accomplished. But now that he's been resurrected from the dead, now that he has done everything necessary for your salvation, he is now the object of worship. Look now again in Hebrews Chapter 1. The author of Hebrews cites Scripture to prove his point. Notice in verse 6, he's already said, Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. 
Now, the author of Hebrews is quoting a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32, 43, he's quoting this text. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 32, 43. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, the author of Hebrews quotes this verse, and we read this in Deuteronomy 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Now, I hope you're paying attention, and I hope you notice that the words in Hebrews 1 are not found in Deuteronomy 32. Hebrews 1, the author says, let all the angels of God worship him. Your English text of Deuteronomy 32 doesn't have those words. Well, what's going on here? There's a very interesting textual problem that this passage generates for us. So I need you to bear with me as we talk a little bit about the history of the Bible. The first thing to remember is that our English Old Testament is based on a Hebrew Old Testament that comes from around 7 to 900 A.D. This Hebrew text is known as the Masoretic Text. Now, children, if you want dessert after lunch, remember this. What is the Hebrew text? Masoretic Text. That's a Hebrew text from around 7 to 900 A.D. That's what our English Old Testament is based on. And in 99.9% of the verses, it's perfectly reliable. There's there's nothing to worry about with the Masoretic text. However, in the 0.1% of verses, like Deuteronomy 32.43, the New Testament sometimes quotes the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek Old Testament from the time period before Christ. The Septuagint is a thousand years older Then the Masoretic text, 900 A.D., the Septuagint was translated before Christ. That was generically the Old Testament of the apostles, the Septuagint. It's a Greek Old Testament. Now, what does this tell you? The Septuagint was translated from a Hebrew Bible that is older, far older, than the Masoretic text. This is all coming to a conclusion. You've been very patient. Keep bearing with me. For a long time, the the Septuagint was the oldest Old Testament text we had. That was as far back in history as we could go. In fact, I was reading a commentary from John Owen on this passage. This problem is so glaring, Hebrews chapter 1, Deuteronomy 32, that John Owen doesn't even deal with Deuteronomy 32. John Owen was writing in the 1640s, 1650s. So even up to that point, they didn't realize the solution to this problem. Well, in 1947, some shepherds in the desert of Egypt, uh, the desert of Israel, found scrolls of the Old Testament. These are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were hidden in caves around Jerusalem. The Dead Sea Scrolls are maybe 500 or more years older than the Septuagint. So this places us way back into Old Testament history. Dead Sea Scrolls are written in Hebrew. The Dead Sea Scroll of this passage has, worship him, let all the angels of God worship him at this place in the book of Deuteronomy. Now I go through all of that to simply encourage you with this. Memorize your Bibles. Learn the scriptures. Get it written upon your heart. Remember what David says in Psalm 119. Your statutes have been my meditation day and night. The other places in the scripture talk about writing God's commandments upon your heart. This example from Deuteronomy 32, Hebrews chapter 1, teaches us that God preserves His Bible primarily through your heart, not primarily through pages in a book. He preserves his word through it being written on your heart and you bearing the fruits of the word in your life. 
That's how God's word is preserved. Secondarily, it's preserved through the Holy Scriptures in the book itself. Now, I'm not saying that God does not preserve the book. I'm not saying that the book will ever disappear. That's not my point. My point is, sometimes the church can lose part of Scripture. Deuteronomy 32, 43, let all the angels of God worship him and not rediscover it for another 2,000 years in the book of Hebrews, chapter six, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. So all this is to say, learn the Scriptures. Meditate on the Scriptures. Get to know these Scriptures, and God will preserve His Word. Now, back to the exegesis. Deuteronomy 32, 43 Notice that it says at the very end of 43, he will provide atonement for his land and for his people. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. And Moses is recounting Israel's history under Jehovah's love and care all the way up to the time of the exile. And Moses is essentially saying, God has been gracious to you. You are God's people, but you will become rebellious. Uh, verse 15, Moses says, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. And so what Moses is saying is that God has been your rock through all ages and all generations, O Israel. But you will depart from him, you will forsake him, and God will send you into exile, but God will not leave you in exile. God will not leave you in your sins. Verse 43, he will provide atonement for his land and for his people. God will provide redemption. The word atonement is a word that comes from the Levitical system, and the word atonement simply means a covering for sin. This is the same word that we get the term Yom Kippur from. It's the Hebrew word Kippur. That means the day of atonement. And the day of atonement is when God covers all the sins of his people and he is fully reconciled to them through the sacrifice. Well, this is, I hope, self-evident for you, a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work. This atonement that God would provide is realized in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the author of Hebrews says, he brings the firstborn into the world, he will provide atonement for his people, quoting Deuteronomy, 1, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 43, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God promised to bring this about. God promised to provide the Redeemer... And he has accomplished it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might think, why does the author of Hebrews quote the Old Testament to prove this? Well, he's writing to Jews who reverenced the five books of Moses. They regarded the five books of Moses as the heart of the Scriptures. Rightly so. It really is the foundation of all the rest of Scripture. So he quotes this passage to prove to them on their own premises the truth of the gospel. But notice what else he's also doing. And, and this is where I think the, the chief benefit for our souls comes from. The author of Hebrews quotes a promise as if it's as good as the fulfillment. The author of Hebrews quotes a promise from Deuteronomy to prove the truth of a new reality. It really comes down to this. God's promises are as good as done. God's promises are as good as done, even if you don't see it with your own eyes. God's promises are the proof of His purposes. God's promises are, as we learn in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the ultimate reality of life in this world. You know, we're going to have an update on Presbytery during the Sunday school hour, but one thing that came out of this Presbytery meeting is there were many saints 
who have passed recently. One of the minister's wives is, is deathly ill, and she, she's probably not going to be here for much longer. And it's in those moments when the Lord begins to take your life away. Perhaps he takes your wealth away. Perhaps he takes your health away. When, when all the, the, the temporal things of this life are being taken away, that the promises become all you have left. At the face of the grave, the only thing you have is God's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your trust on those promises? Are you resting on the hope of the promises? Because as the author of Hebrews reminds us, their good is done. The promises are the reality. Do you trust in those promises? Well, the the author of Hebrews quotes this not merely to talk about the promises, but to talk primarily about the work of the angels and to show that Christ is superior to the angels because Christ is the proper object of worship. Look at what the text says. Let all the angels of God worship him. Worship is a, this term for worship is a word that means to bow down and to show obedience or to show loyalty to. The, the word itself means to bow down, to bend over. But even this word, to bow down, it comes from the same word for kiss. Remember Psalm 2 we looked at last time I was with you. Psalm 2, the author quotes that in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then the psalmist goes on to say, kings of the earth, be wise and kiss the son. Same word group, same type of idea. To bow down and kiss is to worship and show obedience to. That's what this idea of worship means. That's what is going on here. But why do we worship? You see, it's, it's not merely that we're commanded to worship. That's always a good answer. We should worship because God commands us to worship. That's, that, that's correct. But there's, there's a deeper truth going on here. The, the reason that God is the proper object of worship, the reason that Christ is the proper object of worship, is because God and His Son Christ are full of glory. Glory is the thing that we worship. The glory of God is what causes us to bow down and praise and kiss the Son. The author of Hebrews says this in verse 3. This is part of why I read the the broader context. Notice what he says in verse 3. The Son is the brightness of the Father's glory. The the Lord Jesus Christ, as your Redeemer, is the glory of God. It is the manifestation of His greatness that He gives to those that worship Him. The word glory in Hebrew, and be turning with me to Exodus 33, the word glory in Hebrew is kabod. And the word kabod, it means glory, but it also has this idea of weight. It has an idea of of weightiness. And so the kabod of God is not merely a manifestation of his greatness, but it also brings a weight with it. It bears down upon the one that experiences it. Moses, being a Worshipper of God, uh, being a a worshiper of God in, in Genesis 33, after God had reconciled the people after the golden calf incident, Moses is praying to the Lord in verse 18, Exodus 33, verse 18, and he says, please show me your glory. What Moses is asking for is, show me your kabod. Show me your greatness. I want to be buried under the glory and the greatness of the Almighty God. Show it to me. I want to feel it and to see it and to experience it. Notice how God answers him. Then he, the Lord, said, I will make all my 
goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Later on in verse, uh, chapter 34, the Lord actually does this in verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Here's the point. God's glory is his work in saving sinners and condemning the wicked. When the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, what does he actually pass before Moses with? Long-suffering and merciful, forgiving iniquity, by no means clearing the guilty, but condemning the wicked. The goodness of God is his perfect justice in salvation and in damnation. That's the goodness that passes before Moses. Now you're ready for 2 Corinthians 5. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Pardon me, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 11. Uh, it's hard to break into Paul. Uh, verse 9. We'll, we'll just start it with verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation, meaning the ministry of Moses, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because, because of the glory that excels. For what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. If it was glorious for Moses to see the back parts of Jehovah and to hear him proclaim his name, how much more glorious when Christ has accomplished this work, when Christ has fulfilled the promises. Keep reading. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Keep reading. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But all we... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the kabod of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about worship. He's talking about God showing you His glory. In the person and work of his son. Chapter 4, verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel of Christ, you are presented with the glory of God. All of his goodness is made to pass before you in the person and work of the Son, crucified and resurrected and ascended for the salvation of sinners. Glory be to his name for his goodness. And the author of Hebrews says, the angels are commanded to worship him. The angels worship this Christ. The angels, when they see this glory, bow down and give loyalty and obedience to this Christ. Peter speaks about this in chapter 1 of his letter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter speaks about this great salvation. He says in verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. 
searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating what uh, uh, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, to those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The the, the glory of this passage and this reality is overwhelming. Because what what Peter is saying is that, that just as the crowds who are religiously, fanatically lining up to a Marvel movie premiere, when they're streaming out of the movie theater and blocking traffic to get into the movie theater to see the glory that they gain their salvation from, as it were, likewise in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even here, even now, in the spiritual realm, the angels are crowding around the rafters, peering into what is happening in this place. Because they are coming to see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship Him. Even here and even now. Some of you perhaps have read the descriptions of the great revivals in the colonies. Like when George Whitfield was preaching. And some of the testimonies of, of his preaching was, he would go to a country church, maybe no bigger than this, and the place would be packed to the rafters with people. One testimony says that it was so packed with people, the perspiration and the moisture was so dense that it would rise and condense on the ceiling and start raining back on the crowd because there were so many people packed into the building. That's what the angels are doing every time the gospel is preached in God's church. They are crowding into the church because they recognize Christ is there and we're commanded to worship him. Brothers and sisters, Christian worship is a glory beyond our imagining. There are things happening now through the person and work of the Lord Jesus by the power of his spirit that it is impossible to see with these eyes. You have to perceive it by faith. Secondly, if the angels do this, if the angels are eagerly pressing into the worship of Christ, how much more ought we for whom Christ died? You see, the angels want to look into these things as something mysterious they will never experience. We learn later on in the book of Hebrews that God does not help angels. He does help the seed of Abraham. The angels will never experience the bitterness of conviction and the joy of forgiveness. The angels will never experience the the terror and the joy of repentance. They cannot experience that. But you and I can. You and I know what it's like to be one of God's exiles. But in Christ, we know what it's like to be one of his reconciled ones. When angels fall, they fall forever. But God, in his mercy to sinners, redeems you through the atonement he has provided. How much more ought we to worship Christ? How much more ought we to be diligent and pressing into his worship? Just as the angels do and were made to do. Let me give you a couple of Practical applications of worship. The Westminster Confession very helpfully tells us worship is of three kinds. Private, family, and public. This is public. Private worship is when you have your Bible and you're praying in your prayer closet and you are presenting yourself before the Lord, seeking His glory and bowing down before Him. Family worship is when the father or the head of the house, maybe a mother, whoever it may be, that is bringing the children before the throne of grace and opening the scriptures and praying with them and the whole family is brought into the presence of God 
to see his glory in the gospel and to bow before him and to kiss the son. Angels are present at all of those instances of worship too. Because as we see in Hebrews chapter 1, God makes them fiery spirits. We'll come to that presently. When you pray, this is what you're doing. When you lead your family, this is what you're doing. I want to encourage you with this in two ways. First, remember that worship is bowing and kissing. Worship is humbling ourselves before Christ because he is greater and mightier and worthy of our worship. I think sometimes we come into worship with the wrong attitude. We come to private prayer and we don't actually come with this bowing and submitting attitude. Or we come to worship, private worship, and and we're waiting for God to bow us down. We're we're waiting for God to uh, throw a lightning bolt at us so that we have to bow down. You see, one of the, the graces of the Christian life is that because you've been given the knowledge of the truth, when you come to God's worship, you are expected to And you are empowered to, through the Lord Jesus, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. To bow yourself down. So how do we do this? One of the best ways to prepare yourself to worship, private, family, and public, is to confess your sins. To confess your sin. You see, the angels worship because by nature Christ is greater than them. We worship because by nature and by sin, Christ is greater than us. In other words, even if we had never sinned, we should still worship. How much more because we have sinned should we be worshiping? We confess our sins by reviewing the law, reviewing our activities of that day, and actually humbling ourselves and grieving over the things that we have done. Many times when we confess sin, we stop short. Because I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, it is not fun to humble yourself and to acknowledge your transgressions before God. It hurts. It's painful. It's humbling. It's dirty to lay your face in the dirt and confess to God that you have sinned. You remember what Job says at the end of the book? When God shows him his glory... And Job says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's confession. The man that does that, the woman that does that, is ready to worship. The woman who abhors themselves, the man who repents in dust and ashes, is ready to worship this Redeemer is ready to receive the goodness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the story of the publican and the Pharisee, the tax collector and the Pharisee. They were both in the temple at the time of prayer. They both came to worship. And the Pharisee said, I thank you, O Lord, that I am not like other men. Thank you that I am not like this tax collector. And then the tax collector in the back of the room, not even looking to heaven, beating his chest, said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? That man was heard. That man worshipped. The one who confessed and humbled himself. Do likewise, not only because God commands it, but also... This is the way that God will transform you. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 one more time. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. The heart of Christian growth, the beginning of of our justification and sanctification and deliverance from sin is worship of Christ. Look at what he says, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we, 
We who have the Spirit of the Lord with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. Amen and amen. The way the Holy Spirit gets into your life and starts cleaning up your life is by beholding the glory of the Lord. It's by worshiping Him publicly, privately, and in family worship. This is, this is great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. I want you to be encouraged by this because you do not need to unpack all of the pain and angst and mistakes that you have made in your life. There are plenty. I have plenty. You do need to see the glory of God. You do need to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You do need to bow down and worship God and then He does the work. He does the transforming. He does the sanctifying. He does the justifying. He does the resurrecting. You remember what it was said of the apostles in the book of Acts. The Sanhedrin took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the thing that marked them out. You also are communing with Christ through worship. Well, returning to Hebrews chapter 1, one last thing simply to note about the angels. Christ is the proper object of worship, and the angels are made for this. The, the, the way that God has made the angels, they are made to be his worshipers. Look at what he says in verse 7. Of the angels, he says who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. This is quoted from Psalm 104, verse 4. I want you to notice simply one thing that he says about the angels. Well, two things. First, he calls them his ministers. This is a word that means to serve. And these servants are put to serve God. Now, we need to keep something very importantly in mind. We, we often speak about serving God... In the Christian church, we should do that. You need to serve God. Many times, though, when we think about serving God, we think about serving his people. Did not Christ tell Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep? So if you're going to serve Christ, we serve his people. That is all well, true, and good. When you serve one another, you are serving God, but only indirectly. Only through his people. If I were to go help my wife with something around the house, I am serving God through my wife. I'm not serving God directly. There is a service that we owe to God directly that is not through his people. The type of service that we give depends upon the one that we're serving. So my wife has several young children. When I serve her, the way that I serve her is going to depend upon who she is and what she needs. She may not need me to go through the history of textual criticism while the diapers need changing and the dishes need washing. I might want to talk about that with a seminary student or a fellow minister. The way that we serve depends upon the one that we're serving. God stands in need of nothing. God is not benefited by any of your works. God does not need anything. He says in the Psalms, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing you can do for me that adds to me. So how do we serve God directly? Well, turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100 The psalmist begins in verse 1. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now we have this language. Serve, minister to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. Uh, he has made us, not we ourselves. Verse 4. 
Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. What's being described? Worship is being described. So this psalm and the rest of Scripture, when they talk about serving God directly, the way that you do that is by worshiping him. God does not need our worship, so to speak. He doesn't need anything from us. But he is the proper object of worship. And being the object of worship, that's the only response we can give to him. That's the way that we serve him directly. Now, the author of Hebrews says this is what angels are. Angels are the servant of God. They are his ministers, which means primarily that they worship him. You saw a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the vision of Christ on the throne, and the angels are surrounding him, covering their face, covering their feet, saying over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the angels are made to minister to him. Now, to bring this whole thing to a conclusion, what the author of Hebrews is proving is that Christ is greater than the angels because the angels worship Christ. The one who is greater is worshipped by the lesser. And in the context of Hebrews, he's doing this to prove that the gospel of Christ is greater than the law of Moses. But this trades on us understanding worship and the proper object of worship and recognizing that it is only God who is worshipped. Now, he proves this by drawing our attention to the angels who are greater and mightier and stronger than us. As it says in verse 7, they are flaming spirits. They are fiery beings who are mightier than we are. And even they worship. Even they bow down to Christ. There's a great illustration of this, and I'll leave us with this, to induce you to worship the Lord Jesus today. In the Lord of the Rings, at the very end of all the battles and all the, all the stories, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is crowned king, and when he's crowned king, everybody is bowing down to him. And then he comes up to the hobbits. And the hobbits, Frodo and Sam and their two friends, are about to bow down to the king, but then Aragorn says, no, you don't bow to anyone. And then Aragorn bows to them. You see, what's going on is that if the king himself is bowing down to the hobbits, how great are these hobbits? What have they done to earn this kind of worship? Likewise, the author of Hebrews is saying, if the angels bow down to Christ, how great is this Christ? How glorious is our Redeemer. Worship Him, all the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and for His work of mediation and forgiving us of our sins. We bow down and pray that You would ever keep us in the fear of God all the day long, that we might truly be Your worshipers, seeing Your glory in the face of Jesus and being transformed by that same glory as by the Spirit of God. And we pray that you would do this all for the sake of the Son of your love. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.